If you're here for the first time, I'd love to say hello to you afterwards and welcome you. And we are in the final sermon this morning of our series in the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis that we've been began in January. And so if you'd like to turn with me to page 23 in the Bibles. Genesis chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, one of the longest in the Bible. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to read it, but I'm going to read it sort of through the sermon rather than all at once. So you're going to need it in front of you on page 23. And I'm going to pray. Come and drink the river of his word. We pray, Father, now that you would quench our thirst. We long to hear your voice. We long to be strengthened, to live for you in your world by faith in Jesus. May we leave here this morning encouraged to do that because we've heard you speak to us now through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell was asked what he would say if, when he died, he found himself standing before God. And he replied that he would say, Sir, you did not give us enough information. Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? That can be a question that both non-Christians and Christians struggle with in different ways. Maybe it's a question that you have. In this series, looking at the life of Abraham, we've seen God interacting directly with Abraham, giving him specific promises And one of the things that's come up with discussion and and questions over the weeks is why does God do that with Abraham in such a direct way, but not with me? We've seen one of the answers to that is that Abraham was unique. He was the one that God chose to be the father of his people. And so the special dealings that God had with Abraham weren't just about Abraham and his life. They were about the history of the world. They were about how God would save the world. And that's what these stories then are here for. Not primarily to make us think, well, why doesn't God speak to me like this? Maybe that's what I ought to be expecting. No, they're here to make us think, wow, what kind of God is this who shows grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it? Even Abraham. Even us. What kind of God is this who makes extraordinary promises that involve redeeming the world from sin and shows again and again that he will keep those promises no matter what, even in the face of sin and plain stupidity on the part of his people? What kind of God is this? This God is a God that I want to know today. That's what we've been seeing so far in the book of Genesis. And now we're at the end of Abraham's life, and we've had to condense these last three chapters into one uh, sermon, but we're only going to look at the middle one, chapter 24. Um, But it's sandwiched by the death of Sarah in chapter 23 and the death of Abraham 
in chapter 25. So we're at the end, and yet the book of Genesis carries on. And in chapter 24, we get this beautiful story of how Abraham found a wife for Isaac. A love story. So we're going to, as I said, we're going to look at it in in chunks. But what might strike us as we hear it, if we compare it with all that's come before, is that in this chapter, in chapter 24, as we hear about how God found a wife for Isaac, nowhere in this whole account does God speak directly to Abraham like he has uh, many times before in his life. In fact, God has finished speaking to Abraham, and the last thing he said to him was at the end of chapter 22, after the near sacrifice of Isaac, reaffirming his promises, as we saw last week. And now we just see Abraham getting on with living out the promises with no further direct, specific instruction from God. And so it's a reminder, as we've begun to think, that if it isn't normal for us to have God speaking directly to us in that kind of specific way, well, actually, it wasn't normal for Abraham either. We know he had long periods, years and years in his life, where he heard nothing direct and specific from God. Occasionally, God would speak some dramatic word, some promise. But much of the time, his experience would have been more similar to ours and indeed to most of the rest of God's people throughout history, relying not on direct new revelation from God right here, right now, but on what God has already said. And if anything, the Bible would say, actually, we have it better, because Abraham was looking forwards all the time for something that had not yet arrived, as we saw in in our opening verse, living by faith, not receiving yet the things promised, only seeing and welcoming them from a distance. Those things in Christ have now come, and we have them. And so we know God in a more intimate way than the everyday experience of an Old Testament believer. But what then did that life look like for Abraham? If you want a single word that sums up this chapter of sort of normal everyday experience, it is the word kindness. God doesn't speak or act directly, but his kindness is everywhere. So as we read this, look out for that word, because it's there, but look out also for evidence of that in what happens, of God's kindness. Tiny bit of context, chapter 23, Sarah has died at the age of 127, and the chapter is basically, chapter 23 is basically about making sure she can be buried in the land of Canaan, the land of promise, still trusting that God will give Uh, Abraham, his descendants, this land, even while right now he's just an an alien and a stranger. That's chapter 23. Now, chapter 24. And first of all, as you can see on the back of the notice sheet, if you want to follow on that, we see God's kindness anticipated, first of all, in verses 1 to 14. So verses 1 to 14, chapter 24, I'm going to read that now on page 23. Do follow with me. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, 
but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, well, if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land, shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife from my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was towards evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master, Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master, Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So, God's kindness anticipated. How do we see that here? Abraham's chief servant is given a task to get a wife for Isaac, not from the pagan Canaanites, but from his own people. And it's a little reminder to the Israelites reading this later, and indeed to Christians, that marrying outside of God's people is consistently a bad idea in the Bible. And it's clear from what Abraham says that he's learned a thing or two in the many years since God first called him. What has he learnt? Well, verse 5, Isaac needs to stay here in the promised land no matter what. Do you remember if you were here way back in chapter 12, there was a famine and straight away Abraham left the promised land and went to Egypt, which did not go well for him. But no, verse 8, if she says no, don't come and get Isaac, just walk away. In other words, faithfulness to God is more important than getting the job done. That's something Abraham had failed to see earlier in his life. Do you remember? Chapter 16, he and Sarah got it into their own, uh, took it into their own hands to, to produce an heir on their own initiative with the slave girl, Hagar. Now he knows there can be no shortcuts. If it doesn't work God's way, it's not God's will. Well, how can he be so confident now? Verse 7 in the middle explains. If you look at that, he remembers what God has done in the past and that gives him confidence in the present. When you've heard God speak, you can trust him when he's silent. 
That's what's going on here. God has said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So we can be sh- he, he can be sure his angel will go before you and find a wife, he says to the servant. But if that doesn't seem to be happening, walk away. Don't try and force it on your own initiative. And so the, solemn, the servant solemnly promises and off he goes and he takes ten camels and they arrive at a well and these ten camels then feature heavily in the prayer that he prays as he watches the women come to the well to find water. Now at first glance this is a slightly odd prayer, isn't it? When I say, please give me a drink, if she says yes and also gives water to the camels, then let her be the one. So it's like the teenager who says, the next girl who texts me, I'm going to ask out on a date. And the text comes, please will you tidy your bedroom before you go out? Oh no, it's his mum. But it's not just a random prayer for a random sign of guidance, do you see? He's actually employing very sensible criteria. See, he's not going for looks or charm He's going for a woman who is willing and eager to go out of her way to serve. Book of Proverbs picks up on that. Beauty is fleeting and charm can be deceptive, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It's the same kind of idea here. He's not even certain as he prays that if this happens, it will be the right woman. If you look in verse 14, but it's a good place to start. But just note the end of verse 14 as well. It's a hint that this is a love story, but not a standard love story. Not just about the happy couple. By this I will know that you have shown kindness. There's that word that we were looking out for. Kindness to whom? In verse 14. Well, we'd expect it to say Isaac, wouldn't we? But it says, it's not that, it says Abraham. Kindness to Abraham. See, this this love story isn't just about finding Isaac a wife, it's about God keeping his promise to Abraham. And that word for kindness, which features four times in this chapter, is a really big word in the Bible. When it's used of God, it always has something to do with him being faithful to his covenant, showing grace and mercy and kindness, even in the face of sin or rebellion or unworthiness from his people. And we'll see more of that as we continue now. So, Next, God's kindness revealed. So let's read the next bit, verses 15 to 27. Verse 15 on page 24. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her. And said, please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said. And quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels without saying a word the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becker and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. 
Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcar bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So, God is not directly, obviously active in this chapter, and yet you see his fingerprints are everywhere. Verse 15, before he had finished praying. Do you remember what Jesus said about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount? He knows what we need before we ask him. See, prayer is not about reminding God of things that he might have forgotten or lobbying him to move uh, our concerns a little bit higher up his big list of things to do today. Prayer is about us depending on a sovereign, loving God who loves to answer in ways that we don't expect. So here comes Rebecca. And we know before the servant does that she's from Abraham's wider family. Imagine that. What a coincidence, you might say, humanly speaking. But God is at work and she's very beautiful, a virgin. But is she going to pass the test? Step one, yes, she gives him a drink. That's very kind of her. But what's this? I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. Now, do you know how much water a stone jar might have contained. Uh, Maybe about three gallons, 13 litres. Big things, these stone jars that these women were able to carry on their heads and still are around the world. Camels, meanwhile, on an occasion like this, would consume about 25 gallons of water each, which is about two petrol tanks worth in terms of, you know, car terms. It's a lot of water. And that will then last them 10 days, apparently, um, although it's apparently a myth that the water goes into the hump itself. But they can drink all of that water, two car petrol tanks worth, in 10 minutes, given the opportunity. But Rebecca's got her single jar of three gallons. So what is she offering to do? As she offers to to, to allow the, the camels to drink, to give them a drink... She's offering to make something like 80 trips down into the well and back up to the camels. It would have been a kind of pit that you go down into, the water's kind of flowing up out of the ground, you you gather the water and you go back up to where the camels are waiting. She's offering to do that 80 times. It's a massively generous act of service. And it's going to take a while, isn't it? So verse 21, what does the servant do? Well, he just stands there. (laughs) typical we might think could at least help but he's on a mission isn't he to see if Rebecca is really willing on her own initiative to care for him a stranger and his ten camels in this way because if she is she really might be the one and indeed she does so Out comes the bling. Where's your father? More hospitality ensues. And verse 27 again, don't miss the servant's interpretation of what is going on. 
the God of his master Abraham has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness. Again, who to? To Abraham. God is keeping his promises without a single direct intervention and yet we discover he has nevertheless intervened from behind the scenes to enable uh, the servant to find Rebecca. And so thirdly, and this is the longest section, God's kindness confirmed in verses 28 to 67. So we're going to read this in, in a little bit. So verse 28, first of all, the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to see the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and had heard Rebecca tell what the man had said to her, he, he, went out to find the, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him. But he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. So we've just met Rebecca's brother Laban, and he's a tricky character, this guy, because uh, that will become clearer even later in Genesis when he deceives the deceiver, Jacob, and he manages, him to, he manages to get him to work seven years for Leah, who Jacob doesn't want to marry, but he manages to kind of engineer things so that happens. And then another seven years for Rachel, who he does want to marry, and those are his daughters. But even here, we start to get hints that he is not entirely straightforward. And the main question is, will he and Bethuel consent to the marriage of Rebekah? Bethuel's her father. And what we then get amounts, in the following verses, amounts to a retelling of the first half of the chapter. So let me read this. See if you can spot any differences in uh, what happens as I read it. And the, di the differences that are there, there's a few. They're designed to make the case for marriage to Bethuel and Laban. So let's listen to this. So he said, verse 34, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, maiden servants and maidservants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master Made, him, made me swear an oath and said, you must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, what if the woman will not come back with me? He replied, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and from my father's family. Then when you go to my clan, you will be released from my oath, even if they refuse, refuse to give her to you. You will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring. If a maiden comes out to draw water, and, if, and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar, and if she says to me, drink and I'll draw water for your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. 
She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. <clears throat> I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethel, son of Nahor, whom Milcar bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get, <clears throat> get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me so I may know which way to turn. So, do you see again, kindness is where we end up. But now, will Bethuel and Laban show kindness to Abraham? And meanwhile, another function of repeating that whole story is that we, the readers, have had it rammed home to us again that God is at work behind the scenes. He has sent his angel. It's as if Moses is saying, learn this, remember this. This is God's kindness at work. He's answering prayers before they've been prayed. He's generously providing a most generous woman. So, how will Laban and Bethel respond? Let's see, verse 50. Laban and Bethel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah, take her and go. And let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewellery and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they get up, got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, let the girl remain with us ten days or so, then you may go. But he said to them, do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted me success to my journey, send me on my way so I may go to my master. Then they said, let's call the girl and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So this is classic Laban behaviour. If you know anything of the story later on in Genesis, this is exactly what he's like. He will make as much material gain as he can, He'll squeeze everything he can out of the situation. He'll delay things as long as possible. But unlike Jacob later, the servant can't be put off. And so we reach the thrilling climax. Verse 59, they sent their servant Rebekah on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now, Isaac had come from Be'er Lahai, Roi, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is this man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married 
Rebecca. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now there are a number of things going on there. But do you notice who the master is as the chapter ends? All the way through it was Abraham, God's kindness to Abraham, being shown by the promises, being able to continue through a wife being found for his son Isaac, so more descendants can be born. But Abraham, we know, is about to die. Verse 65, Isaac is now the servant's master. And whose tent does Rebekah end up in? He ends up in Sarah's tent, the matriarch. See, there is a new master and there is a new matriarch in the people of God as the story continues. The promises are going on now to the next generation and we're told love blossoms and Isaac is comforted. Do you notice in passing the order of events in verse 67 she became his wife and he loved her. The world says it can only be the other way around, doesn't it? You've got to love someone first, then, well, you know, later on you can think about making a commitment. As far as the Bible is concerned, love blossoms where a commitment of marriage has already been made at the start. That's just, that's not the, marriage is not the end of the story, it's the beginning. But this chapter isn't really about Isaac and Rebecca. It's a love story, but it's not their love story primarily. This is about the kindness of God, as we've seen, to Abraham in keeping his covenant promises, ensuring that they're passed to the next generation and eventually through Jesus to us today, which is the best love story of all. So what then does this teach us in the 21st century here in London? If we're not careful, it's easy to read the life of Abraham and conclude that God is meant to be like a kind of driving instructor in our lives. You know, when I learned to drive as a 17-year-old, I was very glad I was learning in a car with dual controls with my driving instructor in the passenger seat. That's much better than doing it with mum or dad sitting next to you. Uh, And to begin with, he had to give a lot of help. I can't think of many jobs that require the long-suffering patience of a driving instructor. But after a while, you know, I only needed him when things were going very wrong and he'd suddenly have to step in again. And those times then became rarer when he needed to grab the steering wheel and slam his foot on the dual control brakes. But there's a danger we think of God like that. And we wonder why he seems... To intervene, to intervene from the passenger seat rather a lot more with Abraham than he does with us. Do you see? But the thing is, he's not the driving instructor in the passenger seat. He's the engine for the car, ensuring it goes anywhere at all. And in fact, more than that, he is the driver. And we're the passenger, not him. Sin is where we try and grab the steering wheel from him. Faith is trusting him to drive. Not just for the bits of life that we can't do by ourselves, where we sort of call him in to help, but actually trusting him for everything. 
Every breath, every meal, every day, every experience, and the greatest gift, salvation itself. Arguing that God is not there, behind the scenes, is like Romeo or Juliet claiming there's no such thing as Shakespeare. Where's the evidence, they might ask? Well, it's everywhere. It's over everything he's created and over every moment of our lives. And maybe the issue is that we're approaching God as if he's a kind of scientific, factual object to be proven or disproven. That's probably how Bertrand Russell was approaching him. You know, astronomers photographed a black hole this week, didn't they? Amazing. And we think, well, I want to be able to do the same with God, so I can sort of tick him off the list and know that, you know, he's either there or he isn't there, and I want to be able to answer that kind of question. But what if that's not who he is, a kind of impersonal object to be studied, to be sort of known intellectually? What if his desire for human beings is to woo us and draw us into intimate relationship with him? Because he is personal. He is a a personal God. So the best relationships don't begin with cold, hard proof of existence. You know, here is my passport. Here is my birth certificate and proof of address. I definitely exist. That they begin with an offer of friendship that draws the other person closer. And that is what God has offered us in Christ and what he offers us today, even as he provides for us in every moment of our lives, as he does here in chapter 24. He says, come and taste and see. Come and look at who I am in the Bible. There's plenty of evidence in here, but more than that, there is a love letter from the living God. This love story here points to the greatest love story in the Bible, which goes like this. God has sought a bride for his son from a foreign country. And he's wooed her with more than gold bracelets and nose rings, but with the death of his son in her place on the cross. Ensuring she becomes the beautiful bride she can never be by herself because of her sin. And one day the eternal heavenly city will come to earth prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that is good news for anyone who will simply trust in that son for themselves. Good news for the married, for the single, for the divorced, for those struggling to make sense of life, for those tempted to pride at their wealth or achievements, for those tempted to despair at the lack of those things. See, in order to trust God and to have the kind of faith that we see Abraham showing in God, particularly towards the end of his life, we need to know his character. We need to know what he's like. And this chapter and the rest of the Bible tells us he's a God of kindness. The reading from Romans put it like this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And Paul goes on in those verses to make clear that the the good of those who love him is being made more like Jesus. See, it may not always be easy on the journey that he takes us through, but we can trust that he is good and that he is at work behind the scenes. 
many Christians find it a really helpful discipline every so often to look back and take stock of the providence of God in our lives. The ways God has been at work. The ways we can look back and say, oh, I didn't see it at the time, but now I can see how God worked through that really hard time that I went through. Or how he has given me blessings in these ways. And as we learn to give thanks and to, to, to take stock of those things, maybe you know, every few months, maybe once a year on a special occasion or something like that, as we learn that discipline, we learn to say, yes, I can trust God with the everyday nitty-gritty of my life. Not just on Sundays, not just with the big things, but with everything. I can trust that he's a God of kindness, that he's not just there as the, the driving instructors to call upon when things go wrong, but he's there at every moment, working in everything, everything that we are doing. That is the kind of God that he is. It took a lifetime for Abraham to learn that trust. That's what we've seen through this series. It will take a lifetime for us as well. But he calls us today to take one more step towards him. Saying, yes, Lord, I trust you today. I want to go your way, even when that's hard. Please help me to do that. And please help me to be ready to take the same, same little steps of faith tomorrow. Let me pray. Father, as we reflect on the extraordinary life of Abraham, all the ups and downs of his life, we marvel at how you are a God who makes and keeps promises. You did that in and through Abraham, and you did that for our benefit, that by trusting in Jesus, we might be called children of Abraham today. Whether we are physically descended from Abraham or grafted in by faith. Thank you that you have kept your promises in Jesus, and we can trust him. And so as we reflect on our own lives, we pray that we would be able to take stock of how you have been at work, maybe in ways that we've never even considered, maybe in painful times, as well as times of joy. We praise you that we can trust that you are a God who is always at work behind the scenes, not necessarily in obvious ways, but that in all things you work for the good of those who love you, that we might be conformed to the likeness of your Son. May we know that more and more in our lives. And if we've yet to trust in Jesus for ourselves, may you enable us to do that. That we might know the joy of you providing a saviour for us and providing for us in every area of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>